Felix, the governor. And then we get chapter 24, verse 1. Have a look. Uh, it'd be great to have your Bibles open because we've been doing a bit of flicking today. So uh, chapter 21, 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the Jewish bigwigs, they descend and come down and they bring their best greasy lawyer. And they've had nearly a week to come up with their prosecution against Paul. What do they say? Well, the lawyer starts by buttering up the governor and then he gives three charges against Paul. Verse 2 and 3. Tertullus, the greasy lawyer, lies, essentially, to butter up the governor. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. What a great lawyer. The Jews didn't like Felix at all. Felix is noted in history for two things, for his brutality and for squashing rebellions with complete violence. Uh, the historian Tacitus, this is what he said about Felix. He said, With savagery and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He's dumb, barbaric, and has a lot of power. And Tertullus kind of butters him up. And then he brings three charges against Paul. Have a look at verse 5. We have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Three charges. First, this man is a plague. He's a troublemaker. There's riots wherever he goes. He's a disturber of the peace. He's a plague. Second, he's a leader of the Nazarene sect. They're saying, this isn't Orthodox Judaism. It's a weird charge. Why is that so bad? It's because in that world, only Orthodox Judaism actually had the legal right to exist. So if you're not an Orthodox Jew, then you had to be under a Roman religion. And they're saying that Paul, he's actually leading a different religion. Third, he tried to desecrate the, the temple. They claim that he tried to bring a Gentile into the temple, which was a serious charge. Three accusations against Paul, to which Paul gives three answers. He goes, first, was I stirring up trouble? Have a look at verse 11. You, Felix, can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. See, Paul wasn't causing trouble in Jerusalem. It's easy to prove. Just check out the last 12 days. No, the only one's causing trouble were the Jews. Second, this isn't a sect, this is the hope of Israel. Have a look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. Paul is adamant that he believes and preaches the same God as the Jews. You call it a sect, but I take seriously the promises given by our God. He's actually saying that it's the Jews who are out of step with their own religion. We'll see what he means by that in a little bit. But his point is that this isn't a sect. This is the hope of Israel. And third, 
I didn't desecrate the temple. I was bringing gifts. Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. See, they didn't find Paul desecrating the temple in any way. In fact, when they found him, he was performing a Jewish ritual and he was bringing a significant donations from other churches for Jerusalem. I didn't desecrate the temple. I brought gifts. What are you talking about? Verse 20, Paul says, Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. I.e. nothing. I'm innocent. See, the more and more that you read this trial, the more you see that Paul is the only one who's actually innocent. The Jews lie about Paul and try to get him killed. Felix is a brutal leader who ends up keeping Paul in prison without a charge in the hopes of getting a bribe. Verse 26. Paul is the only one who's innocent, and yet he's the only one facing opposition. He's in prison. He's on death row to be killed if he loses this trial. He's been slandered. He's beaten. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Like our hearts go out when we hear stories of innocent people in prison. What a life. Is that what you should expect in life? Should we expect this? Do you think Paul expected this? Actually, Paul did expect it. Maybe not in the exact details, but have a look at Jesus' promise to Paul back in Acts chapter 9. I've got it on the screen. This is what Jesus said. He, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul expected to suffer for Jesus' name. Because Jesus told him, this is what you should expect in life. Should we? We're not Paul. What should followers of Jesus expect? We'll have a look at what Jesus says in John chapter 15. This time I'll get you to turn back with me. John chapter 15 verse 18 is the book before Acts. I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. This one won't come up on the screen. John chapter 15 verse 18. Give you a few more seconds. This is Jesus speaking. John chapter 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you follow Jesus you should expect to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. You will be persecuted. You will face opposition. Maybe not in the exact same way as Paul, though maybe one day it will. And sometimes Christians, we're surprised by persecution or we run away from it. We don't want it. But we have a promise from the lips of Jesus to expect 
persecution in life. Don't be surprised when it comes. And don't run away from it. Don't seek to avoid the persecution that Jesus says will come if you follow me. Now, don't run towards it for dumb reasons. Don't be a jerk. But for most of us, I reckon we know those times when we're at work, at school, at uni, in the pickup line at school, on the sidelines at sport, when we know we could say something risky, bold for Jesus, that could bring on persecution in some way, the temptation is to run away at that point. Do you feel that? Or at least to downplay what we're going to say so, you know, it's not as bad. Oh, so your kids are going to the kids' club uh, at the church in the holidays. Yeah, it gets them out of the house for a bit. You'll keep more respect if you do that than if you say, yeah, I love my kids hearing about Jesus. I went to a dinner recently, and uh, to, to my shame, I, I went for the halfway option. I said the thing that wasn't a total cop-out, but I was still trying to get some approval, and you know, I didn't want to be seen that way. Do you do that? We need to repent. We need to get clear. If you follow Jesus, you need to be clear, we need to be clear on expecting persecution. Don't be surprised by it and don't run away from it. Paul faces significant opposition in these trials. Uh, But the crazy thing is, as you read it, defending his innocence isn't what Paul is most interested in doing. We're at point two. Uh, clarity on our mission in life. I've changed the name of that so when your outlines will say something different, but point two, clarity on our mission in life. The stakes for Paul are extremely high, right? If he loses any of these trials, he'll be killed. The stakes couldn't be any higher. But when he gets a chance to speak, he spends a bunch of time talking about stuff that won't necessarily get him acquitted of the charges. It seems like there's something that's even more important to him in this moment than saving his own life. Let's jump to the third trial, uh, where things have escalated to the point where Paul is now before the king, Agrippa. So chapter 26, verse 1. Flick there with me. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. What is Paul's defense that he gives before the king? He tells his testimony. He tells the story of how he became a follower of Jesus. He starts with his mission in life, verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent uh, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He says, you know... That from when I was young, my mission in life was to be the strictest, most religious Jew ever. Let me show you an example, he says. Have a look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul opposed Jesus and punished Christians as much as he could. But then he met Jesus. Verse 13. 
At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. It's incredible. Completely spectacular and an overwhelming experience. Jesus appeared and spoke to Paul. And meeting Jesus changed Paul completely into the man he is now. Verse 20, he became someone who declared, first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then all throughout the region of Judea and to the Gentiles also, that they should repent and turn to God. Paul's on trial before the king, defending accusations from the Jews, and the defense he gives is his story about how meeting Jesus changed everything. Why is that what he says? What would you say? If you were before ScoMo and you had to give your defense and if you lost, people were trying to kill you, what would you say? Well, implicitly, his story does give some defense about why he's different from the Jews around him, so he doesn't totally bypass that. But ultimately... Agrippa's reply tells us the main point of Paul's defense. Have a look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, In goosebumps, thinking about this line, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. What amazing clarity on his mission in life. There's only one thing that drives Paul, it's clear. This is one of those passages, it's just worth memorizing it. It brings such clarity to the Christian life. What should drive you, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Even when he's on trial for his life, when Paul gets a chance to speak, he wants to persuade every person to become a follower of Jesus like him. It's incredible, mind-blowing. Paul is crystal clear on his mission in life. But how does he possibly do it? How does he persevere through an unjust prison sentence? See, from this moment... Paul was never, ever free of chains for the rest of his life. How do you do that? How on earth can you actually value the salvation of others even over the value of your own life? How do you do that? Point three. Paul has a deep conviction that the hope of the resurrection is here. See, Jews know from the Old Testament that there's going to be a future, a time full of hope where God will raise, restore, bring people to be with him and pour out his blessings on them. Have a look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. I've got it up on the screen. Daniel chapter 12, I said 7. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. This is from the Old Testament. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's a picture of a future, a time when God will raise all people, and some will be raised to eternal life to receive blessings from God. It'll be amazing. And others will be raised to shame, everlasting contempt, completely awful. And Paul says in Acts that this resurrection hope is shared between him and the Jews. Have a look back at Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Acts chapter 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He says we both believe in the resurrection hope where we can experience God's blessings in his kingdom. The difference is that the Jews are still waiting for it. But Paul is now convinced that this hope is here and able to be accessed now. The key is in Jesus. Paul explains a bit more of it in chapter 26, verse 22 to 23. Sorry for all the jumping. Flick there with me. Chapter 26, verse 22. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He says that Jesus died and rose as the first of many. You can know that resurrection and the hope that comes with it is certain because the one who was raised first tells us. In Jesus' death and resurrection, a new era is here where people can rise to light and life with God in his kingdom. It's fantastic. In Jesus' resurrection, the hope of God's kingdom blessing is here. Jesus is the key. This is the deep conviction that drives Paul. In Jesus, the hope of resurrection has arrived. And Paul's so convicted by this hope that he puts the need to save his own life beneath the need for others to hear about it. Because he knows that even if he dies, he can completely expect what the future will hold. It's astonishing. He gets it so clearly and it drives him. When you get this truth, you'll see why the mission in life that matters most is helping people get to know and relate rightly to Jesus. To relate rightly to Jesus yourself and to help as many people as possible get there as well. It's even more important than family, success and fixing the world. This is the truth that shapes all reality. Because the way that the hope of resurrection relates to you is based on how you relate to Jesus. The way the hope of resurrection relates to you is based on how you relate to Jesus. Jesus in his resurrection proclaims light, we see verse 23. Because naturally, we're people in darkness. That is naturally where people who ignore and reject God, we distance ourselves from him, away from the light. And in the darkness. And if you take a second to think about it, it's obvious. 
we live to make ourselves happy, to fulfill our dreams, to centre our lives around us, not around the God who made us. And because of that, God says we deserve shame, contempt and judgment for eternity. It's dreadful. It's horrific. When you talk about what you can expect in life, the reality is not much is certain. Uh, You might expect to one day get married or have a family or to one day find a job that fulfills you. Or you might expect to have good things happen to you in life if you kind of act kindly and good out in the world. But the reality is none of those things are guaranteed. The thing that is guaranteed is that if nothing changes, if you keep living in ignorance and rebellion against God, you can expect a resurrection to eternal judgment and shame. But the unbelievably good news is that it doesn't have to be the case. Paul's message is to turn to Jesus. Because the way that the hope of Jesus and the resurrection relates to you is based on how you relate to Jesus. You can experience resurrection to eternal light and life by turning to Jesus. And my desperate hope is you do that. Even such a short time as this, I pray you would experience the hope and blessing of turning to Jesus. If you want to find out more, please stick around at church. Please come to church at Easter in a couple of weeks' time. We would love for you to experience how good it is to turn to Jesus. If you already know how good it is to turn to Jesus, praise God. How are you going at being deeply convicted and driven by the hope of resurrection? Are you totally captured by it? Does it drive you to persevere through persecution to not run away from it? Does it drive you to be clearly committed to the same mission in life as Paul? To fearlessly proclaim the message of light to those walking in darkness. How do you grow this deep conviction? How do you get more and more captured by the present hope of resurrection? Well, the more you dwell on what you deserve from God and then marvel at what he actually gives you in Jesus, the more you'll be totally captured by it. Keep that truth in front of you regularly in varied ways because it never happens by accident. There's nothing in our world that's keeping that in front of our mind. So much of the input we get in life wants to take us further from that truth. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff you could do. Obviously, it's helpful to be regularly in God's word and prayer, but also things like intentional conversations, praying for each other. Maybe you'd text someone to say, I've been praying this for you. Uh, Things like listening to Christian podcasts that keep your mind fixed there. Uh, I particularly like listening to Christian songs to help me with this. Uh, Songs have a a particularly helpful function, I reckon, in capturing our hearts. See, sermons, they kind of hit us in the mind first and then work to shape our hearts, which is great, and we need that. Songs kind of do the opposite. They hit us in the heart first and then they kind of shape our mind, which is great, and we need that too. It's why songs with good lyrics really matter. How are you going at being deeply convicted and driven by the hope of resurrection? Because this truth shapes history and reality for all people. It sits at the centre of life and brings real clarity to life. It helps us to persevere with the clear expectation that we'll face suffering now, but it also leads to the expectation of resurrected life with Jesus for eternity. 
I'm looking forward to that. Are you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are clear, that you are there, that we can know you. Thank you so much for the hope of resurrection. We don't have to wait and see how it will come about. We can see that Jesus has been raised, that if we trust him, if we turn to him, we will be raised, that we experience all of the blessings that come through your kingdom in Jesus' resurrection. Father, please help that to be the center of our lives. Please help it to drive us. Please help it to be the thing that we that drives our expectations of life. Please help us to persevere in suffering now and help us to clearly fix our eyes on the resurrected life with Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.